period, I gotta punctuate it. I said I loved your shirt, but behind your back I said I hate it. The lightning strike me down if I lied, me no one be around when my tongue's untied. Everybody says it's okay, all the little things I say with my big fat mouth. La 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 Hi, my name is Alex DeRosa. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at New Life, and I'm excited to talk with you today about my big fat mouth. But before we continue, if you're on Facebook watching us, thank you for tuning in. I did not say that last time I spoke, and I neglected you, and I don't want to ignore you anymore. So thank you so much for being with us, whether you're watching right now or you're watching in a week from now. Thank you for for watching us on Facebook. And if you've been here two times, three times, this is your 100th time or 1,000th time, thank you so much for coming out and making New Life your home. And if this is your first time here, I just want to welcome you and let you know that we've been praying and planning for you to be here today. And New Life students, one of the things we do is we welcome all of our first-time guests with a round of applause. So I'd like to do that for you as well today. Can we welcome our first-time guests? Yeah! Thank you. Thank you for trying us out today. We pray that you enjoy your experience and that you continue coming back. We are currently in part three of our series, My Big Fat Mouth. In part one, Brad talked about gossip. In part two, Pastor Chris talked about criticizing. And today, we get to talk about complaining. Now, complaining is something that I struggle with. And, and I would probably venture to bet I'm not alone in that. And I've struggled for a long time about whining and moaning and woe is me. For example, when I was 13 years old, my mom was getting remarried. Now, I didn't like this, so I made sure that people knew about it. My parents had been divorced for two years, and I was still convinced that they were going to get back together. I was sure of it. And so when the date for a wedding with someone new happened, I was not happy, and I made sure that my mom knew about it, everyone else knew about it. And then the wedding came, that day that it just made me so frustrated because, one, I didn't want the wedding to happen. Two, I had to be at a wedding, and most 13-year-olds don't like going to weddings. And so I was sad about that, not really sad, but really mad. And I'm a teenager, so I had a normal level of angst already, so this is just building on what was already there, and then to make matters worse, I had to wear dress clothes. Now, I was not for dress clothes at 13. Still, even to this day, I would rather be in comfier clothes, but at the time, I hated them, mainly because I was a little bigger. And because I was a little bigger, I had to get dress clothes that were made for a much taller person. And so I had short sleeve shirt on that day, but because, again, I was wearing clothes for a much bigger person, the short sleeves came down to about here, and they kind of flapped around like a circus tent. And so I was angry, and I made sure to people that knew that these, like, these wings that I had on were not comfortable. And then, to make matters worse, I had to usher. Now, usher still doesn't really make sense to me, but back then I was mad. Like, really? You can't find your own seat? You're an adult? You drove here? You can't also continue to walk here? Fine. Sure, like, take my arm and I will walk you there. If you go to the bathroom, don't find me. Just find your way back. And then, at the reception, I was looking for my favorite pop, kind of going through everything, and no Mountain Dew. And what 13-year-old wants to drink anything besides Mountain Dew? So, again, mad. And I let people know it, made sure at this wedding that while people were having fun, that I told them that I was not happy. Up until when we took a picture. Now, even if you're in a bad mood and someone says, like, okay, we're taking a picture, say cheese or whatever, three, two, one, you generally fake it. You're like, okay, fine, I'll do a smile, hey. And, and it's okay. But 
I was making sure not to do that in this instance. I wanted people to know just how miserable I was, not just that day, but as they looked back on that picture. So when we, when we got together, the whole family, um, my mom, my stepdad, Danny, my sister, my brother, we got in this picture, and I just looked angry, mad. And I know at the time I was being a jerk, but I didn't really realize it till much later because as life went on, I kind of forgot about it until a few months back. It was the baby shower for my son Ezra, and my Aunt Jo came up and said, I have some old pictures of you, which sometimes it's like, great, but for me, I'm like, oh my gosh, burn those. And so she said, I have one from the wedding. And I was like, oh no. And so I looked at it, and oh my gosh, I was embarrassed, but I thought it was kind of funny. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to, to show you the picture today. I wanted to illustrate the point because I A picture is worth a thousand of my big fat words. And so I wanted to kind of put a face to complaining. Oh, yeah, that's, I mean, maybe you can guess which one is me from the description, right? Yep, that's it. That's me with the transition lenses right there looking upset. It's an old picture, but you can still kind of see the angst and the anger and the complaining on my face. I and mean, it's funny because I thought I would learn my lesson looking back at my life. Like, I should have learned my lesson. Like, trying to ruin my mom's wedding day should have been enough to kind of set me on a path where my words were better. Unfortunately, I have a twin brother, and we like to fight all the time. And we like to kind of make fun of each other and try to up the ante and make it worse and worse until one of us would cry or punch the other one. And that was what we did. And so again, my, my, my mouth continued to get me in trouble up until I was 16 years old. I was driving the car with my friend Gunther. And as I was driving, he began making fun of me because I was not a good driver. I'm 16 years old. What 16-year-old is a good driver? And to make matters worse, I don't have depth perception. I only see out of my left eye. So I was on a turnpike. It was a construction zone. I was nervous. I was like clenching the wheel and trying not to hit the cones and whatnot. And so Gunther, like many of my friends, started making fun of me. Like, hey, Alex, you suck at driving, which is a normal like high school guy thing to say. And I could have said something back like, shut up, man. Or like, your name's Gunther, or something like that, that would like make, like, just kind of like, haha, we're kind of having fun. But instead, I, I went over the top, okay? And I'm going to tell you this, not out of pride, because, uh, but out of really weakness, because God really taught me a lesson this day, and it stuck with me since. He says, Alex, you suck at driving. And I said, Gunther, well, your family's poor. And, oh, what a rude thing to say, right? Now, thankfully for me, me and Gunther are so friends. We texted last night at like midnight. We were talking about Dungeons and Dragons because we still play to this day, and we are still close. But from that moment on, my friends started to hear about what I said, and it finally hit me. Like, this was a lesson I needed to learn, and God allowed it to happen in this way where I really was mean to a friend, that words have power, that what we say have power consequences, and even to the point where they bring about death if you're not careful. Pastor Brad and Pastor Chris both shared this verse the last couple weeks, and I wanted to share it again. It's from Proverbs 18.21. It says this, the tongue can bring death or life. Those who love to talk, which I'm in that category, will reap the consequences. The tongue can bring either death or or life. And when we put it that way, it sounds a lot more serious. Again, whenever I was younger and I was complaining at my mom's wedding, I didn't think much would come out of that. I didn't realize the power that I could have with my words until later on in life. So now as an adult, I 
I want to bring life. I notice that there's a lot of death already in this world. And I don't need to tell you that. There's pain. There's suffering. We live in it all the time. And it shouldn't be that way. I have an eighth-month-old son, and as he grows up, I don't want him to be in a world that has more death than it does now, more pain, more suffering, more negativity than we have right now. I want him to be in, a, in an environment that is full of life. So today we're going to be talking about complaining, but we're really going to be talking about how we can use our words to bring about life. What is the alternative to complaining? And before we get into that, and before we really go into the life bringer himself, God, and see what he has to say about it, let's pray. Dear God, I pray that your spirit would just ascend on us right now, that we will feel your spirit in just a new way, that we will feel closer to you than ever, and as we walk out of this place, that we will be challenged we will be convicted to live lives that bring about life and not death. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. One of the first examples in the Bible, maybe not the first, but definitely one of the first examples of complaining was a whole nation of people. They were God's people. They were the Israelites, and they were in slavery. And so naturally, they would complain in slavery because that's a terrible situation. However, God heard their plea, and he came and he rescued them with miracles. With this guy named Moses, he directed him to help them leave slavery. And so as they were leaving, God even showed them a miracle by getting a sea and splitting it so they could walk on dry land. And then they would walk in this desert. And as they would go, God had this pillar of fire at night to guide their way and a pillar of smoke during the day so that they could know where they were supposed to go. And when they got really hungry and there was no food in the desert, he would bring food down from heaven called manna that they could eat. And then when there was no water to drink, he would allow water to come out of rocks so that they could be sustained. He provided for them time after time with these big miracles. However, the people didn't think that was enough. They began to complain and complain, and they even brought their concerns to their leader, Moses. And here's what they say, and it's recorded in the book of Exodus. And it says, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Now, I know over-exaggerations, and this is one of them. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They're saying... Why didn't you let us be slaves for longer? They're saying that this is worse than slavery. They were complaining again about freedom. And for me, as I read this, it didn't make sense. How could you continue to complain after God did these amazing, miraculous things? And finally, I understood when I read from Dr. Travis Bradbury, who wrote a book called Emotional Intelligence 2.0. And in that book, he says this, that repeated complaining hardwires the brain to do more complaining. Repeated complaining just hardwires our brain to do more complaining. The more negative we are, the more negative we're going to be. He even talks about this confirmation bias. If we're looking for bad things, for negative things to happen, they're going to happen. We're going to find stuff. I mean, the world's negative as it is. And so if we want to find something that's wrong, we're generally going to bump into it because of our mindset. And so these people, that's what they were doing. They were negative in slavery, so they built a habit, and their brains were hardwired so that when they were in freedom, they also had negativity. So when they brought this to Moses, he responded. And he could have tried to go against them by saying, but what, what about this? What about this? Like, God saved you from all this stuff, and freedom is actually better than slavery. But instead, he went to the heart of the issue. And he said this, that you 
you people are not grumbling against us but against the Lord. You're not bringing your complaints against us as leaders. You're bringing your complaints against God for his provision, for his plan, for what he's done in your lives. And that verse, for me, is so convicting. Because what if, when I complain, it's not really about my clothes or it's not really about the weather. In fact, what if when I'm complaining, it's against the provision that God has for my life? What if when I'm complaining, it's erected completely at God for his plan? which makes me start to wonder, what is it that I complain about? So I want to ask you the same question, too. What do you complain about? Now, you don't have to answer out loud or look to your neighbor or point at someone. Just start to think, what is it that kind of wraps up your mind in negativity? For me, a lot of times, it's my schedule. There's just so much I want to do that I don't have the time to do anymore. I, I still love Dungeons and Dragons, and I love board games, and I love comic books, and I love Netflix. I have all these crazy hobbies that, that really, that I enjoy. However, I have responsibilities in life. I, I have a family. I'm in seminary for school. I have a job and stuff like that. And so I don't have all the time in the world like I did back in high school or I did in college. So I like to complain about that when I don't get to have fun with my friends, when I ask Rachel, can I go play? And the answer is, no, we're too busy. Then I get mad and I like to complain about it. And even now that I'm in a house, which is a blessing from God, I still complain. When I was in an apartment, I would say, oh man, I don't have enough space here. Now I have a house. I say, man, I have to take care of all this stuff. And I consistently find things to complain about. For you, what is it? Is it maybe your teacher or your boss or your spouse? Or is it that there's just not enough money? Or is it when you're watching Netflix or Hulu or whatever you stream stuff on that there's just not that perfect show that you want to watch? That you're just continuing to scroll and scroll and scroll and it just seems like there's nothing perfect for you. What is it that wraps your mind up? Is it the government that they do too much or they don't do enough? What do we complain about? And after we kind of figured out what it is that, that kind of wraps our mind, we can understand the truth that Moses was saying. Now, the problem isn't those things. The problem isn't what we're wearing or the money or our boss. The problem is actually this, that we've taken our eyes off of the goodness of God and we've placed them dead center on ourselves. We've taken our eyes off the goodness of who God is and we've placed them on ourselves. It's a selfish thing to complain. When we complain, we make it about us. Even so far as what I like to do is I like to find stuff that is justified to complain about. I like to find that one thing, like, okay, sure, I won't complain about the little stuff, but can I at least complain about this big thing? It's, a, it's hard. It's not comfortable. So, so I like to do this so much that I went into the Bible, and I wanted to find a story that was justifiable to complain about. I wanted God to give me one example that, okay, in most situations, don't complain, but in this one, it's okay. And I thought I found it. There's a guy named Paul, and Paul was called by God to start churches all over the world. He would go to these towns like Corinth and Philippi, and he would begin a church, and he would raise up leaders, and he would preach to them, and he would help them learn what to do, and then he would leave and do it again in a different city or a different town, and then he would get more leaders, and he would send them back to those churches so they were equipped with leaders, and then he would write them letters so that they would continue to know what to do. He had this amazing mission from God, and he did it. He listened to God every step of the way. However, on his journey, he really just wanted to be a pastor in Rome. That was his heart's desire. He was a Roman citizen, and he believed, and this is probably true, that if he could get to the center of the world, and at the time was Rome with the Roman government, if he could go there and be a pastor, if he could have a church in Rome, he could change the whole world. He could change the makeup of everyone if it just could get to that point where he was in Rome. However, God didn't call him to Rome. He called him to all these different places until 
he was arrested for talking about God. And even before he was arrested, he was actually stoned almost to death and dragged out of a city for just talking about God. And then when he was arrested, he was put on a boat, and they were shipwrecked. And then he was bitten by a snake, and then he was beaten. And in prison, he was taken on trial all the way to Rome. Now, his dream was to be a preacher in Rome. His dream was to be a pastor in Rome. But the reality was as a prisoner, he showed up, but it wasn't the way he intended it to be. But his ministry continued by writing letters to churches, and he wrote this letter to the church in Philippi. And as he did that, this is the moment that he could take advantage of the complaining. This is a time that people would probably get on board with his complaints. I mean, things are not going well, and they should have. He had a good mission in mind. When good people try to do good things, they should have good results. Most people would agree with that. So he responds and he talks to them about his circumstance. And he says this, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Do everything. Do everything without complaining. Like, this was his chance. He could have complained, and people would have been on his side. And it feels good sometimes when you're complaining and someone agrees with you. It feels like exhilarating for two people to kind of be complaining together, and he could have had that moment by complaining about his circumstance. However, he points out the truth that it just doesn't do anything. That if we're going to complain, it's not going to change the world. And the world is wicked and, and crooked and perverse, and we can relate with that today. And if we do want to change it, we need to shine like stars for Jesus. We need to be different. It's a lot of darkness. We need to shine like Jesus and, and bring light to the world if we're going to make any kind of difference. We don't want to be about death with our words. We want to be about life. We need to do something different. So if you're like me and you're sitting there saying that I do like complaining and I do like not doing anything about it, what is the alternative? Well, I think the answer can be found in a quote from Pastor Craig Groeschel. In, in one of his sermons, he says this, and it just attached to my mind. I wanted to share it with you, and it's actually our take-home point today. It says, if you can change your circumstance, do something about it. If not... Change your perspective. If you can change your circumstance, do something about it. And if not, change your perspective. We're going to focus on that first half at the beginning right now. Um, if you can change your circumstance, do something about it. And before I get into it, I do want to point out one thing. And this can maybe trip us up if we don't acknowledge it. It is not a sin to notice something that's not right. It's not a sin to notice that something isn't right. It is a sin when we know what to do, but we don't do it. It's okay to acknowledge that the world is perverse and is crooked and there is death. It's okay to notice that. I mean, we're going to be talking about a series called Elephants in a few weeks or maybe a month or so. And in that series, we're going to be tackling some big issues like abortion and racism. And those things are okay to get mad about and to say, that's not right. That's not how the world should be. But it's not just enough to talk about it. We must do something about it. And one of the best examples in God's word is this guy named Nehemiah. And he lived this out so much that they wrote a book about him. They called it 
Nehemiah. And so he was as a, a cupbearer to a king named King Artaxerxes. And the cupbearer was in a high position. He would just have to drink from the cup and then give it to the king. And if there was poison in that cup, then he would die before the king would die. So it was kind of this kind of thankless job that he had. But during his time with this king, he noticed that the city of Jerusalem was having God's people enter it. But at the time, Jerusalem's walls were torn down. So the people that were now living there are susceptible to attacks or bandits or thieves, and that wasn't right, and that didn't sit right with Nehemiah. So much so that he started praying about it and said, God, please show me a way. Please allow this king to let me leave this nation and go to a different nation and build up walls to help protect it. So he went and asked Nehemiah, or he asked King Artaxerxes, can I leave? And the king said, yes. So he went. And remember, he was a cupbearer, not a wall builder, but he went and he gathered people and they built up these walls and they protected the city of Jerusalem and God's people. He found out what to do and he figured it out by rolling up his sleeves and putting in some hard work and learning about it and he changed his circumstances. I think he can teach us this. That if we have a situation that we can change, don't complain about it. Don't just put comments on social media about it, as much as that can feel good. And if you're on Facebook, I'm not just pointing you out today, because social media was meant to bring us together, but it ends up being divisive. Don't just put comments on social media about it. Get on with your life and do something about it. If there's a negative situation that you can change, then do it. If you need to get training, or if you need to learn something, go out and find it. If you need prayer, get prayer. If you need counseling, get counseling. And that's something that I desperately needed to hear when I was in college. You see, I started dating um, my, at the end of my freshman year of college. You might be asking, why weren't you dating in high school? Well, I will point your attention back to that picture, and maybe we can figure that out for ourselves. And so as I was in college, I began going on dates and, and, and having fun. But pretty soon, I would start to realize that I was scared of the consequences of in a, being in a dating relationship. I started getting anxiety about what if this girl doesn't like me, or what if she breaks up with me, or what if she cheats on me, or what if she leaves me, or what if I say something so bad that she hates me and then we never talk again. And, and I would worry about this so much that anytime we would get in a fight, I would make the problem worse because I'd have all these questions and all these doubts. And generally, if we had a first fight, then that was usually our last because we'd break up, she would leave or I would leave. And a situation would occur again, the next person I would date, the same thing over and over until finally I got to this point where I was pretty sure that I was never going to get married, that I wasn't made for marriage, that I had these anxieties that were not going to go away, and I just couldn't do it until I went on a first date with my now wife, Rachel. We went to a coffee shop, and she had tea, I had coffee. We talked way too much about myself. Again, big fat mouth. And afterwards, though, I went and, go, went and played basketball, and, and one of the guys there was Pastor Mark's brother, Kyle, and he asked me how the first date went, and I said, it was awesome. I think she could be the one. And I really believed it. The first couple of dates would go on. I was like, oh, man, God put Rachel in my life so that we could get married someday. This is the woman for me. And I am so excited until things got more serious. And then the fear started again. And it got worse this time. It was almost this crippling fear that I couldn't sleep. And I got these migraines, this anxiety caused me not to be able to work. And I couldn't get it out of my head, the what ifs. 
What if something's going to go wrong? What if we get married and she realizes one day when she hears a story about me saying mean stuff to my friend Gunther that she decides that she wants to leave? What happens in those situations? And I started complaining about it to everyone that would hear. Everyone. My friends, my mentors, the pastor that I was working with, the students I was working with, everyone that I could tell I would complain about and nothing was getting fixed until someone directed me to counseling. Now for a long time I thought therapy was not for me or for men in general. I thought that as a guy that you just kind of just toughed it out and dealt with it in yourself and, and didn't allow that stuff to happen. But it wasn't, nothing was working. So I found a Christian counselor. This guy's name was Dr. Phil. And before you think that I was just like sitting on my couch at three o'clock on a weekday eating Cheez-Its, I actually went to a guy named Dr. Phil. Kind of weird coincidence, but he was a great guy. And as we began talking, he started to realize that my issue wasn't really with the dating relationships. My issue with, was with my self-image, that I was getting all of my confidence out of what I did. When I did good stuff, I would feel good. When I did bad stuff, I would hate myself so much that I thought I couldn't accomplish anything. And it was just a cycle. It happened over and over and over. And he continued to share that you're not perfect and that you are sinful. And these realities were really hard to hear and embrace. But as we began to, to talk and get deeper into that, he would say that my my self-worth shouldn't be coming from that stuff. It should be coming from God who created me, who loves me, who died on the cross for me. And if I put my hope in him, if I keep my eyes locked on him and not on myself, that my, my self-worth will change. And he was right, and it did. And I was able to get married, and I was able to walk into marriage as a secure and confident guy. And I'm so thankful that I was able to get that counseling, if you're in a situation that you don't like, and you might be right now, you might be in a really difficult spot, if you're in a situation that you can change by hard work or counseling or prayer or figuring out a new skill, whatever it is, do something about it. But if you can't, if you can't change your circumstance because maybe God wants you in that current circumstance, maybe he has a plan for you in that circumstance, if you can't change your circumstance, change your perspective. Now, back to Paul. So he wanted to be a pastor in Rome, but the reality was a prisoner in Rome. And now every day he gets to be chained up to a guard in a small little cell. And for eight hours a day, it's one guard and then another guard and then another guard. So every day, three different guards chained up to him. This is not how he drew it up. This is not the plan. He could have easily just started to complain and wallow. And that would have been the end of Paul. We would not heard from him again. Fortunately for us and for Paul, God began working in his life. And as he began working in Paul's heart, Paul realized something important. Paul realized that he wasn't the center of the story. God, in fact, was. Paul noticed that he wasn't the main character, because if he is the main character in this story, if he is the main character, this is a bad ending. Getting into jail, and he thought probably he was going to die in jail, would not be a good way to end the story. However, if God is the center, if he's the main character, then this story is going to continue because God always has been and always will be. If God is the main character, there's more work to be done, and God still wants his mission to happen here on this earth through Paul. So he started shifting his mind so much so that it was probably a surprise when he wrote to the church in Philippi, and he said this. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me is actually served to advance the gospel. That's being in prison. It's served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. 
So God changes perspective once again. But from prisoner back to preacher. He started to realize that, wait a second, I do have someone chained up to me. They can't leave for eight hours. I can preach a sermon every day, three times a day to new people. And they can hear about the word of God. They can't go anywhere. I can't go anywhere. We can just talk about Jesus and what he does. And one-on-one preaching is the most effective preaching anyway. So as he began telling his story and the story of Jesus to people, they began to understand that Paul was different, that he was sent from God. So he says that the whole palace guard didn't just know about Paul, a prisoner, and maybe they wouldn't have all just known about one single prisoner anyway, but they all knew about Paul and Jesus in this situation. And so Paul looked at this, this terrible, terrible situation and was able to use it for God's glory. So if you right now are in a bad situation, a bad circumstance that you want to get out of, but you just can't, that it seems like God has a plan for you in there, we can acknowledge this, that God still has a plan. If you're in a place you don't like, acknowledge that God still has a plan. One of my favorite stories to tell, and this is the last one I'll share with you today, illustrates this point perfectly. I see, I was playing in worship, uh, in a worship band in high school. I played the bass guitar, and the electric guitarist was named Ryan Smith, and he was like four years younger than me, but like 10 years older than me in terms of skill. He was really talented and super humble as well, and his whole family was great. His dad is named Bob Smith, and he's an FBI agent, so it's probably not his real name, but Bob Smith was this like really jacked guy, and he was really nice, so you never were like afraid around him, but you knew if you made him mad, he could probably like toss you through a tree. And his, his daughter, Erin, was just like so kind and gentle, and Ryan and Erin's mother, Linda, is a saint. Now, I don't use that word flippantly. I really think she is a saint. She taught VBS in Sunday school, and she just could walk into a room, and you could just feel the presence and joy of Jesus. She'd walk into the grocery store and tell the clerk there about Jesus. She just had this way that it wasn't off-putting. It wasn't like she was banging people over the head with her Bible. She was just, just this loving, kind lady, and we all just enjoyed Linda. And so it was a shock to us when she was diagnosed with cancer. We were shocked with how aggressive that cancer was. But every Monday we had a small group, and in that small group we gathered and we prayed for her consistently. And then we said we were going to pray for her every single day. And we'd pray prayers, not like, oh, God, if it's your will, maybe you could heal her. We would pray stuff like, you're going to heal her. God, we can't wait till you heal her. We know that you have the power and your miracles can happen, and you please heal Linda. Thank you for the day that she's going to be healed. Thank you for the day that she's going to stand and she's going to have no cancer in her body. Thank you so much that her ministry is going to be able to continue on this earth. We even went and visited her in the hospital, and as we'd walk in, she had this huge grin on her face. You, can, you knew that her body was getting wrecked by this cancer, but the way that she acted was just so loving and kind. We went for the last Super Bowl that the Steelers were in, and as we were watching it, if a nurse or doctor came in, her attention was not on the Steelers. It was on the nurse or the doctor, and it became pretty clear that everyone, everyone on that staff knew her and knew her well and knew that she loved Jesus because she would share openly with them what she believed. Unfortunately, Linda passed away because of the cancer, and we were left wondering why. And when her funeral happened, it wasn't scheduled at the church that she went to. In fact, it was scheduled at a much larger church that could fit a thousand people because so many people were going to attend. So I showed up, and, and there was only 
standing room when I showed up because I was a little late, and, and I was just in awe with watching how many people were there. And then when the pastor got up, he asked if anyone wanted to share something about Linda. And you know, at a funeral, sometimes this is an awkward or this is a hard time because it's, it's difficult to have words in, in these environments. But as he asked that request, a line formed from the front to the back. And people started coming up and saying how much Linda had changed their lives, how much that her love and care for Jesus shifted their reality, shifted their perspective, and shifted their eternity. They, someone came up that was working at a grocery store and said that they accepted Jesus from talking to Linda. And nurses and doctors did the same thing. And it became abundantly clear that God had answered our prayers because Linda was obedient. She was acknowledging that God still had a plan even amiss all of this stuff, that Linda, in fact, has no cancer right now, in fact, is standing right now with Jesus and, and has full health, that has no pain anymore, and her ministry still goes on this earth because it still affects the people that she affected while she was here. And she taught me something very crucial in my life, and it's this, and I wanted to share it with us. Let's focus on God's possibilities and not on our problems. The problem was cancer. The possibility was all the new people she was going to encounter for Jesus. Let's not focus on, or let us focus on opportunities and not obstacles. Again, the op- obstacle was she was maybe going to die, but the opportunity was the rest of her life here and then eternal life with Jesus. And finally, let's focus on what is instead of what is not. What is not was she didn't have good health, but what she had was a family and Jesus and the life bringer himself on her side and miracles were still happening by people accepting Jesus and she taught me something very crucial that that idea that if we can't change our circumstance what we just need to do is change our perspective because even when life is difficult and it is we've acknowledged that life can get super hard when it is hard And when it seems like everything's crumbling and our bodies are at risk of death like it was for Paul and Linda, we can still rely on Jesus Christ and his plan. Because if our bodies are taken away and we believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, our souls are still secure in him. That idea of relying on God's love was what got um, the, the great king David to say this in the Psalms whenever he was getting attacked by the old regime and by his own family and by his own actions. He was able to say this in Psalm 103. Let all that I am, praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. Life is hard, but it's much easier when we can rely on Jesus. If you've never given your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you to do that today, to ask him to be your Lord, which means owner And Savior, which means rescuer from sin and death. It's as simple as that. God, please come into my life and be my Lord, be my Savior. And if you do that, your sins will be forgiven. You'll get to live on this life with Jesus. The Holy Spirit will give you power to bring about life. And then when this life is over, you get to spend eternity forever in the presence of God. If we want to bring life and not death, it starts with focusing on him, relying on him. And the next step that we can take together this week, if we want to stop complaining and start doing something different, is simply this. If I can change my circumstance, I will. If I can't, I will change my perspective. Complaining is easy. It's super easy. 
but it's not better. And if we want to live lives that are not just easy, but are better, not just easy, but are about bringing life, the first step is taking our eyes off ourselves and putting them dead center back on the goodness of God. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for who you are, and I thank you for coming, rescuing us, saving us from sin and death. I thank you, God, so much that you showed us a way how to use our words to bring life to this earth. I pray that today that our, life, our, our world has more life in it because of the actions that we take. God, I pray that tomorrow that it's even more, God, and I pray that as my son does um, grow up in this world that there's more life when he sees it than it is right now. God, I thank you for your power, for your miracles, for your glory. I pray that you continue just challenging us and allowing us to be different than we are now. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.